How do we learn new skills? There are a number of interesting ways to answer that, and no way to answer it comprehensively in a podcast. I nevertheless invite you to contemplate the question of how we learn new skills, as I share a couple of experiences from my childhood and what I learned from them. I have an extremely vivid memory of learning how to read. I was six years old and in the first grade. The teacher had handed out copies of a Dick and Jane type storybook and encouraged us to think about the sounds that letters make. As I sounded out the letters D, O, G, while looking at the incoherent symbols on the page, it dawned on me that these letters spelled the word dog. It was like I'd been struck by lightning. In that moment, it felt like my entire world expanded to 10 times the size that it had been before. It seemed as though there were a bright light shooting out of my eyes onto the page, and I felt the possibility that all of the knowledge in the world would become available to little six-year-old me, at least all of the knowledge that we know how to write down. This learning experience created an incredibly positive feedback loop within my mind. I loved it. I loved getting better at it. And the better I got at it, the more there was for me to read. I had strong motivation to continue learning. Now, shortly after I learned how to read, I learned something adjacent to reading, which is that there were times that my teachers would prefer that I read and times when they would prefer that I listen to whatever they were trying to teach us. But all I wanted was to read everything I could get my hands on. Compared with reading, the lessons we were receiving in first grade were boring in the extreme, at least for me. So I would surreptitiously read with my book hidden under my desk while pretending to pay attention. And I would get caught and I would be admonished or even punished, but no one could deter me from continuing to read everything I could get my hands on because I cared far more about the worlds these books made available to me than I cared about the approval of my teachers. When I was six years old and in the first grade, I also remember having a great time in gym class. I was reasonably good at two-chord dodgeball and they would give us things like giant parachutes to play with. By third grade though, all of that had changed and I began to develop an enduring loathing for gym class. Two-court dodgeball had gotten aggressive and competitive to the point that sometimes a boy would throw a ball at me with such force that it would knock me off my feet. We were also starting to take on structured sports like soccer and basketball. My aptitude for these games was quite poor relative to my peers. In retrospect, I can see that my gym teachers weren't interested in actually teaching us to get better at sports. They were rather just supervising us to make sure we didn't hurt ourselves or each other, at least not too badly. Being repeatedly picked last for the basketball team taught me all about hierarchical systems and how valuing the skills of some children also meant devaluing the worth of others, namely me. I learned that our culture values aptitude and rewards those who demonstrate it with encouragement and advanced instruction, while those who lack aptitude are often ignored or even bullied. I learned that our culture rewards us for prioritizing things we demonstrate aptitude for and steers us away from things that we struggle with, even when they are the very things that we most desire. 
Athletics created a negative feedback loop within my mind. While well, I had liked gym class at first, I didn't know how to get better at it, but I saw many of my peers continually improving. The frustration of feeling poorly coordinated and the pain of being marginalized and bullied for my lack of aptitude provided strong motivation to avoid athletics at all costs. These two different learning experiences exemplify the differences between two different learning or teaching models, a collaborative model and a master-disciple model. In a collaborative teaching model, the teacher and the student are collaborating together to facilitate learning for the student. The teacher appreciates that for meaningful learning to take place, students must internalize and validate the information for themselves. The motivation comes from within them. The teacher offers the content, but encourages the student to engage with it and explore it in their own way. This is what happened when my first grade teacher invited me to sound out the letters and the words. I don't know whether that is what worked for my peers, but I enjoy working with sounds, and so this was a good inroad for me. I already had a concept for what reading was. I'd seen adults and older children reading books, newspapers, not computer screens because those didn't exist yet, but I understood conceptually that there was a means of interpreting printed letters so that you could interpret them as words, sentences, paragraphs, poetry, even song lyrics. I was also credulous about the whole thing. I believed that it was something I could learn to do, and I was excited and motivated to figure it out. Ever since the moment that symbols transformed into words right before my eyes, I have had a very powerful source of positive reinforcement because I realized that I had this key that would unlock all of writing, even if I couldn't, or, even if I couldn't read or understand big words yet. And that turned out to be true. My teacher didn't try to persuade me to learn to read or threaten me if I failed to learn to read. They helped me figure out on my own how to read. That was all I needed because I had both motivation and aptitude. So this is an example of what I would call a collaborative, student-centered learning model. In the master-disciple teaching model, the student presents for instruction and then the teacher controls pretty much everything else. The teacher tells you what to learn, how to learn it, how fast you should be learning it, and whether you are succeeding at learning it. The motivation is not about absorbing the content or the learning process itself, but rather about earning the teacher's approval and praise. My gym class was a pretty stark, extreme example of this teaching model. No one checked in with me to find out what I wanted to learn or what my own internal source of motivation might be to learn it. We showed up and they told us what to do. Those who did well were praised, made team captain, encouraged to go out for intramural sports teams. Those who did poorly endured the shame of being picked last for the basketball team or the humiliation of having to perform a gymnastics floor routine that consisted mostly of somersaults because that was pretty much all I could do. What you learn from a master disciple learning paradigm often has a lot more to do with how you measure up alongside everyone else than it does actually learning a skill. I did not learn how to be a better athlete in gym class, but I learned a lot about power dynamics, hierarchies, and what happens when you do not demonstrate aptitude for something. 
In the previous episode, I discussed the distinction between desire and attachment. I described desire as the healthy impulse to move towards the things we want and away from things and experiences we dislike. By contrast, attachment is not a function of desire, but rather an inclination to control things that cannot be controlled, such as winning someone else's approval, maybe someone like your gym teacher or your peers. Hopefully you can see that a collaborative teaching model is fueled by desire, whereas a master-disciple teaching paradigm is fueled by attachment. In a collaborative teaching model, you don't worry about whether you're getting anything right because you're engaging in a process with deep interest and curiosity without continuously evaluating your progress. A master-disciple teaching model, however, encourages you to continually evaluate whether you are getting things right, whether the teacher is offering their approval, whether you are doing as well or better than your peers, and so on. I hereby absolve all of you, along with myself, of ever getting anything right. In the eyes of your mentors or in the eyes of your peers, I encourage you to free yourselves from attachment to ever getting anything right and free yourselves to embrace everything you do with a spirit of deep interest and curiosity, especially singing. No one can tell you what sound you should be making, what music you should be singing, who you should be trying to impress, and certainly not whether you are doing anything better or worse than anyone else. As this podcast evolves, I will be talking more about the learning process, including principles of motor learning, how conceptual learning becomes practical expression, and so on. But all learning begins with the motivation to learn, to move towards and embrace new knowledge and skills. And when this motivation stems from your curiosity rather than external validation, that makes all the difference. Thank you once again for your attention. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to explore other ways of engaging with me and learning more about the resources I offer to support your singing practice, please join my email list and explore the other links that appear in the episode description.